If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Right, welcome back. Rob Rickenridge with you. Look, I, I suspect in the world of, of criminal law, there, there was some value in being well-known and high profile. But there is probably a double-edged sword when it comes to notoriety. And I think it is unfortunate that someone would be seen as or considered controversial just for doing their job and being good at their job. Well, Marie Hennon is certainly one of this country's uh, highest profile criminal defense lawyers. And certainly has achieved some some notoriety, and I suppose in the minds of some, is a controversial figure. She's written a, a new book, uh, a memoir. It's called Nothing But the Truth. Talks about her own career, how she got interested uh, in criminal law, rose through the ranks in a very male-dominated industry, and yes, found herself at the center of some rather high-profile cases. John Gomeshi, uh, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, uh, former Attorney General Michael Bryant, just to name a few. Marie Hennon is taking part in a WordFest event tomorrow night to talk about the book. Uh, WordFest.com, more details there. She joins us on the line here this afternoon, though, to talk about all of this. Marie Hennon, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Great, thank you. So good uh, to be here. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like there's there's a few different motivations you had in, in wanting to write this book and tell your own story and, and address some of these issues. What, what was kind of the, the most compelling impetus from, from your perspective here? I think the most compelling thing for me was just watching over the last few years a very uh, a cartoonish depiction of what criminal lawyers are, what defense lawyers do, what female defense lawyers do, and of me. Uh, and so I just wanted to round it out a little bit to give people an inside look of who I am uh, so that what they saw on TV made some sense, had a little bit more context to it. As I said in the introduction, I, I suspect in your field, having profile is valuable. Having notoriety probably is a double-edged sword. <laughs> yeah, how, how do you quantify it? Uh, well, I, I really don't, because it's uh, something that you can't predict. Right. Uh, I don't think you can really quantify it. You don't know what case causes it and what case uh, won't. Uh, so it, it's just not a factor. Uh, for me, personally, anyway. Right. But obviously you want to be known as, as good at what you do. You, you don't want to be um, a controversial figure, I wouldn't think. No, I, it's interesting you say that. I, I don't view myself as a controversial right. figure. Uh, most people don't know what my personal views are about many things, although you might know a little bit more after reading this book. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't set out to be controversial. I do set out to do my job and to do it well. And if in yeah. doing my job, I'm controversial or polarizing, then we've got a problem. It's interesting because you're, you're clearly doing what you love. And interestingly, and maybe not a lot of people would, would say this who are in the field, you're pursuing a, a childhood dream almost. This was something, and you talk about it in the book, that really you were fascinated with at a very early age. 
so true. It, it, I really always was. It was, number one, suitable to my personality. In terms of how I thought I wanted to spend my day, my life, the vast majority of the hours in every day, it just suited what I wanted to do. And on an intellectual level, I was always motivated by issues that related to justice. And my leanings are just defense-oriented. Uh, that's just the way I'm made. Uh, you also had the the benefit of of working under learning from uh, one of the the uh, highest profile criminal uh, defense attorneys. Maybe you know if we were ranking in in all of Canada's history, he'd be right up there. Uh, Eddie Greenspan, or Edward Greenspan, uh, is is someone you worked for, someone you learned from. How how instrumental was he in your career? He was uh, very uh, critical in terms of uh, number one in terms of what I thought uh, a criminal defense lawyer should be, what your commitment to your client which is unwavering, uh, should be in terms of what the work ethic was. Uh, and probably most importantly, how he saw his role in society and the role of defense lawyers, which was honorable, was a significant contribution. Uh, that really guided um, my perception of myself and my job and what my role was. It's funny because if, if people aren't able to mount a vigorous defense, our, our system collapses. That essentially, you know, we, we have the right to defend ourselves. We're innocent until proven guilty. The onus is on the state, on the government to prove its case. Yet we associate criminal defense lawyers with their clients. We assume that only a bad person would defend a bad person. As you say in the book, we have to give some thought as to why the public finds criminal defense lawyers, particularly female ones, so provocative. What have you determined the the answer is to that question? Well, a a couple of things. I think the public does not remember or recall or contextualize the breadth of uh, a lawyer's job, a criminal defense lawyer. So when you think of, for example, the striking down of abortion laws in Canada, well, abortion was criminalized. So somebody had to be charged and a criminal lawyer had to defend them and challenge that law. That is true of for example, the legalization of marijuana, of the right to die. Mm-hmm. These are all criminal laws, very significant social uh, policies that are criminalized. And criminal lawyers' job, a job, is is to challenge all those things. So you're always in the position of having to challenge the government, of challenging the status quo. So I think that is something that we pretty quickly forget. We also forget that in autocratic countries, in uh, countries which don't have democratic systems, the justice system is no justice at all. And it preys on people who are weak, marginalized, poor. And generally that is because they do not have the right to have a person speak for them, to have a defense lawyer. You know, and finally, in terms of uh, being a woman and a defense lawyer, uh, that's probably a conversation that would take us a few hours. Yeah, uh, it is interesting, though. It is interesting that uh, there's some sort of different standard applied to females who do any job. Well, but I mean, if we look back to the Giangameshi case, and this was somebody who was charged with a crime, somebody who was entitled to, to mount a defense, and, and that was your job as a criminal defense attorney. So not only were you stuck with the, you know, the, that smear of, well, you're defending a bad person, shame on you. It was that added layer of, well, this is a woman defending a creep. Like somehow you're, you're now also a... Uh, a traitor to to feminism somehow. That certainly was a, a through line for for some. I'm, I'm glad to to say not the majority, but yeah. uh, certainly some people took that view. Of course, I was doing the same job that men have been doing for hundreds of years. I can assure you, I was not the first person 
who's a defense lawyer who defended somebody charged with sexual assault or any other crime. So, you know, that, that sort of uh, analysis is, is very concerning. But what I can tell you is I'm proud of my profession and there's no day I'm going to be governed as a woman by what anybody tells me what I can and cannot do and what is an appropriate job for me and what is not an appropriate job for me. Yeah. I just don't buy into that. Well, and, and you, I mean, the case of, of uh, Mark Norman, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, now retired, of course, is interesting because it, it speaks to the, the court of public opinion. That, that certainly, I think Admiral Mark Norman was seen as somebody who had been railroaded by the government, that was an honorable and decent man who was the victim of, you know, political forces. And I mean, ultimately, your job is to represent your clients. So in many respects, your job was the same in that case as it, as it was in, in the John Gomeshi case. But my goodness, public opinion and, and the perception of the accused has such a bearing on the discourse, doesn't it? It, it really does. And it's so true. And the job was not only similar, it was identical. Yeah. Uh, I was doing the same job as a criminal defense lawyer in both of those cases. Uh, but I can tell you that case was fascinating because if there was ever a case where you wanted to feel the weight of government power when it focuses on you, uh, that certainly was one of the most powerful expressions of that. And uh, that's why you need people to have the right to have someone speak for them. But remember that I'm not only speaking for them, you are there to challenge the government. That is a very, very important role uh, in our society. Well, it's crucial. Ultimately, you know, as I, as I say, I mean, you know, the, the, when we have the presumption of innocence, that, that has to mean something. Uh, for you as an attorney, though, in, in taking on a case, and, and I think this is something maybe the public is curious about, what you look at, your assessment of the situation, your assessment of what you're being asked, your assessment of the accused, the strength of the Crown's case, all of those factors, what matters most to you? Well, uh, you know, you look at all of those things once you've taken on the case. But in, in terms of the initial threshold, uh, as I say in the book, I'm not the type of lawyer who limits the cases that I'm going to take by the offense or the person. Um, I take on all cases uh, that come to our office. We represent a wide range of individuals, uh, people accused of crimes, people who are victims of crimes, all sorts of things. Uh, so there's no threshold question in terms of, do I believe you? Do I think the case is strong? Do I think the case is weak? You know, those assessments of the strength of the case happen once you're on board, once you're representing your client. So, I mean, yours is a story of someone, you know, rising through the ranks in, in a male-dominated field and, and achieving some great success and obviously finding yourself at the center of some, some controversial cases. But, you, you know, you talk in the book that you're, you're proud of the work you've done. You can hold your head high. What, what's the takeaway for a, a young woman in, in law school? What, what advice would you give? Is criminal law something that women should pursue? Is, is your story a cautionary one, or is it one to be followed and emulated? One, and that uh, what young women take from this is they should definitely consider entering, first of all, the field of law, but any profession and being visible in it. And criminal law is a, a wonderful and incredibly enriching uh, way to spend your, your life and your profession. I, I hope they're encouraged by it. But I also hope that the message that is taken away is that you march to the beat of your own drama and you do you. You be who you are and you do that unapologetically. And you can succeed uh, doing that on your own terms, being who you are. 
I hope that's what mm-hmm. uh, comes across. And to be honest, that was one of the motivations for writing the book. I just wanted to fill the person they saw out more, warts and all. It still matters because maybe we think of injustice as something that used to happen, you know, the wrongfully convicted. That that used to be a problem. But none of this has gone away. Like, I mean, there is still injustice. There are still people who are wrongly accused. Unfortunately, people who are wrongly convicted. That still happens today, doesn't it? There are people who are wrongly arrested. There are yeah. people who are wrongly charged. There are people who are wrongly convicted. And yes, there are innocent people languishing in prisons. It is not a thing of the past. It's in, in this country highly racialized. In the United States, it's highly racialized. There are so many injustices that are reflected, and there's social injustices that are reflected in how we bring the power of the state in using criminal law against members of the public, that it is very, very, very dangerous for us to ever forget the lessons and to think that, well, we're good now, we're okay. Those are things of the past. They're not. They're not at all. Well, the book is called Nothing But the Truth and certainly comes as advertised. We mentioned the event happening tomorrow night, wordfest.com, for more details and uh, ticket information. Marie Hennon, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. All Take the best. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Marie Hennon, uh, one of this country's, I think, most prominent uh, criminal defense attorneys. And something she's earned, I should stress. Someone who's very, very good at what she does. And it might seem arrogant. I'm not trying to put words in her mouth, but unapologetic. That she's proud of the work she's done, and she should be. And yeah, the, the way that she was kind of almost excommunicated as, as a feminist, just for the gall of, of providing... Uh, legal service to somebody who was accused of a crime. That the sins of the accused get put onto the defense attorney. And that's not new. Let's forget. That's not new and that didn't start with that case. And and I remember there's a whole big controversy way back in the 90s. Remember when Stockwell Day was in MLA and uh, he publicly named and shamed a, a defense attorney who had represented uh, an accused um, I can't remember the case. So some kind of accused sex criminal. It's a role, a critical and crucial role that criminal defense attorneys play, and our system would suffer without them. The idea that, well, that guy's probably guilty. That guy seems like a big creep. That's good enough. No, it's not. The Crown has to prove its case. And in the case of Gian Gomeshi, they didn't. They didn't prove their case. So what is Marie Henningsen here exactly? Other than holding the state to account forcing them to try to prove their case and pointing out where there are shortfalls, which any criminal defense attorney should do. If there are shortfalls in the case against Gian Gomeshi, it sure as hell wasn't Marie Hennon's fault. But she got tarred with that. And I think that was really unfortunate. Obviously, she's played an important role in some other cases. And and certainly when we look at the case of uh, former Vice Admiral Mark Norman and how he was made out to be a scapegoat and how he was railroaded, I think in the minds of a lot of people, Marie Hennon was a bit of a hero. In, in playing a pivotal role there. But again, she's doing her job. She's good at her job. She's proud of the job she does. But yeah, when you, when you get involved in these kinds of cases, there's a certain amount of notoriety that comes with all of that, which can be, I think, a double-edged sword. Anyway, her book is called Nothing But the Truth, and you want to hear more from uh, Marie. As mentioned, uh, wordfest.com, this event happening tomorrow night. <music> Meanwhile, on the COVID front, on the treatment sides... Uh, Merck, the company Merck, announced yesterday has applied for emergency use authorization in the U.S. uh, for its new drug to treat mild to moderate patients of COVID.
COVID-19. This could be the first approved antiviral for COVID-19. It's called molnupiravir. One study showed that it cut the rate of hospitalization and death by 50%. Now, here's the thing. Merck is also the company that makes a drug called ivermectin. Now, it would seem odd for Merck, if they had a drug that already worked on COVID-19, to go and develop another. Now, ivermectin uh, is an anti-parasitic drug and certainly has its role, its place. But unfortunately, it appears not here. There were some signs in some lab studies that suggested maybe we should take a closer look at this. And that's happened. As the BBC reported recently, a review by a group of independent scientists reveals that more than a third of 26 major drug trials of ivermectin for use on COVID have serious errors or signs of potential fraud. None of the rest show convincing evidence of ivermectin's effectiveness. But there is a lot of belief still in ivermectin as a treatment against COVID-19 for whatever reason. And as such, people are going to find it on their own. And that's got some some possible adverse uh, consequences. It has its benefits. Not for this, unfortunately, but there's also some risk that comes with it. So as such, today, Alberta Health Services uh, released, it's kind of an open letter almost, to Albertans. That ivermectin is a useful drug, but not a treatment for COVID-19, and people need to stop taking it for that purpose. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is uh, one of the authors uh, of this piece, uh, Dr. Lenora Saxinger, an associate professor of the Department of Medicine, the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alberta, uh, also scientific advisor group co-chair with Alberta Health Services. Uh, Dr. Saxinger, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the impetus uh, to, to release this, this op-ed or this letter and, and you know, to, to release it now. What's, what's the concern you've been seeing and hearing about? Well, you know, there's been a lot of buzz about ivermectin for, for quite a long time. And as time has gone by, um, you know, higher quality trials have been released that have failed to show a benefit of this medication. I think a lot of people were keeping an eye on it because of some early promising studies. But the farther we get into it, the more it appears that this doesn't have a role in COVID treatment. And um, then most recently, uh, some some researchers went through and actually looked at the line-by-line data used in some of the published trials and found all sorts of signals of concern. And so at the moment, it just, it just really seems like the height and the interest in ivermectin outstrips the science by a huge margin. And we're also seeing increasing reports of people having toxicity from taking it, um, even though it's not approved or recommended for this purpose. And so it just seems like a perfect storm of, of confusion and, and badness and misinformation. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. I mean, that, this is how science works, right? We, we, we try to follow the evidence, and sometimes, unfortunately, things don't work out. So we, we've had other drugs that we've studied, and some have shown little to no benefit. Some have shown some some modest benefit, you know, everything from there was hydroxychloroquine early on. Then we had, you know, remdesivir, which would seem to have some benefit, maybe not as much as we'd hoped. There was some hope with convalescent plasma that maybe turns out uh, that there's not a lot there. So that's how these things tend to work. But what what's your thoughts on why there's so much, as you say, buzz, controversy, excitement, almost conspiracy theories at some level? What is it about all of this? You know, I don't know. I, ivermectin has almost become emblematic, I think, in some groups of people. Um, and there's just such a strong, almost alternate reality narrative around it that it's really hard to uh, it's really hard to know how to to deal with that. I've never seen anything quite 
like the, these things that have been arising over the pandemic has taught us a lot about how people interact in real life and in social media. And this is a really um, kind of high level issue, I think, that there are silos of misinformation that become self-fulfilling as people click into them, where they can really form extremely strong opinions and even group identities around a piece of information that don't let them let go of that information, um, even when new data comes up. And, And that's what we're really looking at. We're looking at better quality data that fails to show a benefit. There's still a few trials ongoing that we'll keep an eye on. Um, But it's it's really becoming a a tremendous distraction to our COVID treatment and control that actually works, that has evidence. Well, and and is that because then, you know, people are are demanding it, people are getting upset with doctors for not providing it, people are are going to find it on its own? Is is that one of the consequences of all of this? Yeah, all of those things are definitely a consequence. I mean, many physicians are getting, you know, fairly, I mean, and and people genuinely believe this is something that helps that we are withholding from them. So, of course, they're upset, but that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. There'd be no reason for us to do that. Um, And so there's upset people. There's pressure on prescribers. There's pressure on pharmacists. There's a lot of letters going around. There's discussion of lawsuits. And I'm like, it comes down to data. And at the moment, this is not something that we recommend at all. So it, it just seems bizarre, honestly. Well, and it's important to note, I mean, a, a parasite is not a virus, which, again, I mean, it doesn't mean we closed the door on ivermectin right right from the outset, but was it always unlikely that we'd find a, a solution to a virus in, in something that was for parasites? Yeah, well, I mean, that that is actually a big thing. And if you looked at the original kind of lab-based studies that showed that this compound had some possible antiviral effects, If you actually look at the amount that they used in the lab to have antiviral effects, it's at least 50 times or 100 times more than the usual levels that we would use in a person even to start with. And of course, there's toxicity when you go well above the dose range of things. And so... And so it was kind of doubtful from the get-go, but I mean, people were just frantic to try to offer anything to these dreadfully ill patients. And so... It, it was the same story with a bunch of other medications. They were kind of used and studied at the same time, um, which led to some messiness. But, you know, it is clarifying now, and it really does not appear to be effective at all, let alone a magic bullet. Although, like I said, I'm always willing to change my stance with new evidence. Like, that's that's one thing, is is we do have to keep an open mind. But at the moment, really, there's nothing there. And, and again, part of this 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 letter uh, is to to warn people that there is a downside. So it's not just a case of well, let's just take it and, and what's the harm? Because there is some real potential harm, and we're we're seeing it, aren't we? Well, absolutely. I mean, there there certainly have been um, increasing poison control calls for ivermectin all across many countries, um, U.S. and Canada, and. Um, the other thing is that, you know, we do use this medication for certain sometimes serious parasitic infections, and it's now in short supply for people who have something that we know we need to treat with ivermectin. And that's just sad, right? I mean, that's yeah. just sad. And also people being driven to use formulations of medications that have not been used in humans with a lot of potential for dosing error and higher risk of toxicity is also really a a really bad thing. I mean, the healthcare system doesn't have the capacity for extra problems, and that's an, an extra problem waiting to happen. 
Well, and I mean, look, the good news is we do have effective, widely available free vaccines uh, that that can prevent COVID-19 or prevent more severe outcomes. But I mean, there is going to be a role to play for antiviral treatments if we can get to that point. I mean, you know, HIV is an example where we've developed some pretty good treatments. Influenza has been a little trickier. What are your thoughts on on where we're at in in developing good antivirals for COVID-19 and how important that'll be? Well, the uh, press release data from the Molnupiravir um, looks promising, but we really need a lot more details about that. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that looks promising. And a lot of these antiviral monoclonals, antiviral drugs, really are best used very early. So within the first few days of symptoms, which is something people have to start thinking about, which is if you're at risk of infection and you are have early symptoms, um, getting tested earlier rather than later offers you an opportunity possibly of getting treatment and the antiviral window is really within the first three to five days of 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 symptoms and so i think that these are going to be important to have in our toolbox um that there will be people who will have either waning immunity or poor immune response to the vaccine or haven't had the vaccine for whatever reasons where these will be relevant considerations um for true antiviral drugs but you know ivermectin isn't isn't in that category. Right. You mentioned monoclonal antibodies, which do show some promise in preventing severe outcomes. I I know Florida was an example of, you know, kind of widespread use of that, setting up mobile clinics to try to keep people out of hospital. And I know we've got questions, well, you know, why aren't we doing that here in Alberta? But we've kind of got limited supply of these, don't we? There's, um, you know, there's a lot of supply constraints on a lot of COVID medications. And I I, I think there's a lot of work going on right now trying to access Um, medications that can be used early and that initially once we have better access it will be targeting people who are at the highest risk of progression to severe disease and so that would tend to be people with lots of risk factors people with immune problems and so there's a lot of practical issues to work out but there's a ton of work going on right now to have that available for people in Alberta and I think that it'll be happening sooner rather than later but the supply issues mean that you know the first line of defense across the board for everyone and it's the longest lasting and the most well-tested and approved medication or preventative um, for COVID-19 remains the vaccines that we have widely available right now. Absolutely. Well, more on all of this uh, at albertahealthservices.ca. Uh, Dr. Saxinger, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, that is Dr. Lenora Saxinger, again, Associate Professor uh, in the Division of Infectious Diseases, the Department of Medicine at the University of Alberta, also Scientific Advisory Group Co-Chair with Alberta Health Services. So one of three doctors uh, that penned this letter today, which is kind of, I guess, essentially an open letter to all of us. We urge the public not to misuse unproven medications in their efforts to avoid or manage COVID-19. It is dangerous. And yes, as she said, vaccination remains our best means of preventing COVID-19. And I guess if this is any kind of added incentive, another announcement today from the government that you've still got until 11.59 p.m. on October 14th to receive your first or second dose of uh, the vaccine and and get that uh, $100 pre-filled gift card. As of yesterday, 152,000 Albertans had registered to receive that debit card and add on two zeros uh, for the $100. That works out to about $15 million. Yeah, look, I mean, that was controversial, obviously, not the ideal way to to boost vaccination rates, but that's something, I guess. I think the restriction exemption program had a big, much bigger impact on getting those numbers up, but every little bit counts, right? I want to take a closer look at the worsening situation 
here in Alberta and uh, frankly in a lot of other jurisdictions around North America with wild pigs. So this is something that's been tracked, is being tracked in Alberta. It's a problem that's that's getting worse. And uh, over the weekend now, Parks Canada confirming that for the first time in a national park, uh, invasive wild pigs have made themselves a regular presence in Elk Island National Park. Now, these are viewed as, as described in this article, as one of the most destructive and rapidly spreading invasive species on the continent. So as mentioned, uh, this is a problem in some parts of Alberta that it's now into national parks is, I, I think, a, a concern as well. Uh, joining us to talk a bit more about, you know, the concern with these animals. What is it that makes them so destructive? How can they be contained? Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Ryan Brook is an associate professor at the uh, College of Agriculture and Bioresources at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, also involved with the Canadian Wild Pig Research Project at the U of S. Professor Brooke, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for the invite. Uh, let's first of all learn a little bit more about these animals. When we talk about a wild pig, this isn't just a, a pig that, that lives in the wild. This describes a very specific uh, kind of animal. What, what is a wild pig, first of all? So these are <clears throat> primarily, they look hairy and they can be very different colors. That's certainly the most thing you, first thing you notice is they can be brown or jet black or kind of gray and mottled. But these are uh, come from wild boar that were they're not native. We, of course, we have no native pigs in Canada. They've all been imported. But right. in the 1980s and 90s, they brought these over from Europe to be raised on farms for meat production. And one of the first things they did was cross them with domestic pig to try and make them bigger and have high reproduction rates and that, and effectively made what we called uh, super pigs, which are now running across the landscape that are very large-bodied, very smart, often primarily nocturnal, and they travel huge distances and will virtually eat anything. So, so this has been going on then since I guess that was was back in the '90s when we started to to bring them here. That's right, late '80s and into yeah. the '90s is when there was a big push to diversify agriculture, so they had emu farms and elk ranches and wild boar farms. And so, what happened? Some of them basically escaped then. Well, this is the problem, and it, right very shortly after they were brought over, uh, they were they are very hard to keep inside a fence. I've seen them go over an eight foot fence, and so they can dig under fences, they can power through fences, and they can jump over them. So they're hard to keep at the best of times, and so there was always leakage. But even worse, in about two thousand one, the market crashed, and there was really not a lot of place to sell them and so unfortunately what a lot of people have done and unfortunately sometimes continue to do is cut the fence and let them go so we've seen 100 200 uh-huh. in a few cases over 300 animals just released into the wild and a lot of experts early on said well of course you know they'll never survive in alberta winter you know we get these cold snaps and but of course these animals also come from siberia so they're very well adapted with of course this heavy coat of fur and large body so they actually survive very well through a freezing cold prairie winter yeah um i i don't know if it was your term or not but uh pigloos i saw what, what's, yeah. what's a pigloo so these pigs are so smart and so adaptable. And, of course, when it does get cold, one of the things they do is uh, they actually dig tunnels into cattail marshes where the snow is piled up. And, and much like a Quincy or sort of like a, an igloo, they get underneath and get that tremendous insulative properties of, of snow. And so it might be minus 35 or colder plus a wind chill. 
outside, but it tucked inside in all of that snow. Animals huddled together. It might be minus three, minus five. And actually, that's one of the ways that we can find them is you fly when it's really cold and you see steam just pouring out of the top of them. It's like a sauna in there. So let's talk about what makes them such a problem. So it comes down to, obviously, their eating habits, uh, most most particularly. What What is it about these animals that makes them so destructive? Well, they will eat anything, and so they'll gobble up, uh, you know, in the spring, they'll gobble up nests with eggs in them or goslings or or ducklings. They will feed on salamanders, insect larvae fish, um, you know, anything they can get uh, as much as, you know, taking down an adult white-tailed deer. So they feed on almost anything. And unlike most of our animals, so you see an elk or a deer out in the wild and they're grazing away on grass and Mm -hmm. peeling off some. Pigs are rooters, so they get that nose into the ground and they rip up the ground. And so when you come into an area where pigs have been, it looks like a rototiller went through and just tore the ground up. So they do much more damage than any other species. They also get into wetlands and water water areas, and they wallow around and they defecate in them. So E. coli rates go up, salmonella rates go up, and can contaminate other animals and contaminate water. Um, they can spread diseases to humans, pets, wildlife, um, uh, domestic animals. So there's a long shopping list of things they can do. One of the worst economically is crop damage. And so in the U.S., for example, they pay, they lose about $2.5 billion in crop damage every single year just due to wild pigs. Now, where you are in Saskatchewan, it seems like uh, the problem's a little bit worse there than it is here in Alberta. But what, what's the situation in Canada? Canada-wide, it's uh, quite concerning. And so in our database right now that we've been working on for over a little over 11 years now, we have uh, over uh, 50, almost just under 56,000 different occurrences. And that doesn't mean, and that's over many years. And so it doesn't by any means that's how many animals we have. But we have a huge database and 99% of all of them are on the Canadian prairies with the most in Saskatchewan and then Alberta and then Manitoba. Outside of the prairies, they're relatively rare, but B.C. certainly has some. We've seen a couple of uh, occurrences just in the last two months in B.C. Ontario started looking fairly hard in the last two years, and they've found quite a few. Quebec has a few scattered populations that are established. So we are quite aware that this uh, has the potential because, of course, you know, 25 years ago, there wasn't a lot in Alberta, and there certainly weren't a lot in Saskatchewan either. And so yeah. this can go from a very small issue to very big. And I think probably the best comparison I could think of is to think about COVID or to compare it to cancer or a forest fire or a house fire. Mm-hmm. These things can start off very small but can spread incredibly rapidly across the landscape. And so, and that's exactly what we've seen on the prairies. Yeah. And certainly what we could see elsewhere as well. And and it's a global problem, right? Australia has, what, 26 million pigs, I think. Uh, You know, everywhere they've been been released, they they do this. So we shouldn't be surprised if we see them increase like this. Okay, well, and and maybe on the surface, it seems like there's some obvious ways to deal with this. Uh, We can send in the hunters to to hunt them. Uh, We can try to capture them. But uh, from what I understand, those are both maybe more difficult than, than it might seem. Yeah, unfortunately, there are some, you know, one of the rules we follow is that to complex problems, there are often easy, simple to understand, wrong answers. (laughs) And that's that's absolutely true here is that sport hunting sounds great, but with the reproductive rates and the way that uh, sport hunting actually, so there's a group of 11 people go out hunting, they kill six. They go, wow, we killed six pigs. That's fantastic. 
but five survived and they were broken up into two groups and spread across the landscape. And then they become, you know, very quickly become purely nocturnal. And so they're much, much harder to find and they hit heavy hiding cover as well. And so if you want lots of wild pigs on the landscape, the very best thing you can do is open it up to sport hunting. And that's exactly what happened on the Canadian prairies. It has been and continues to be uh, open season for sport hunting, and that's and we've seen exponential spread across because of that. So not only is it not part of a solution, it's actually a major part of the problem. Yeah. And so that would be one of the indicators, I would say, if you're looking to say, okay, who's really serious about getting rid of wild pigs, uh, then any province that, uh, you know, says, okay, we've we've closed the door on that and we've actually banned sport hunting and we're fo- focused on professional removal techniques. And there is, there unfortunately is no province in Canada that's gone that route yet. Well, they're hard to capture. I mean, maybe for the same reasons, right? I mean, you know, they're nocturnal. They're, they're quite wary of humans from what I understand. So how much of a challenge is it to, to try to capture them? It's incredibly hard, and I give all the credit in the world to the folks in Alberta and, and other provinces, too, that are that are working hard to try and find and remove them. But that is ultimately one of the biggest challenges. And so, um, you know, and, and I'll give you one quick example. You know, we had one animal with a GPS collar. I could track it with my phone. It can literally run, but you can't hide. Um, and we tracked it with an airplane, found exactly where it was, but couldn't see it. We brought in a helicopter with infrared camera, best technology. We had people on the ground. We could not find this pig. And we knew exactly where it was. It could, the collar was working perfectly. And after probably 20 minutes, finally, somebody got off their snowmobile to tie their boot lace and looked at a pig. And this 400-pound animal, nothing tiny about it, had bulldogged under a bit of snow and ice and just stayed there and didn't move. And so that tells you a little bit about how incredible the challenge is to try and find and remove remove them. And that's why, you know, the real cornerstone for all invasive species, and indeed for when you talk about COVID, you talk about cancer or house fires or anything else, is early detection, early reporting, and very rapid and very aggressive response. Those are the absolute cornerstone for any of those issues, including wild pigs. And so we haven't quite met those completely yet, but I think that needs to be the ultimate target. I, I don't suppose there's any uh, any predators we could enlist in our in our efforts. Uh, are, are these are these wild pigs prey to anything anywhere? They are in their native range. Wolves can be quite strong predators on wild pigs, and so they may play a role. One of the problems, though, across most of the prairies, but we've done also quite a remarkable job of removing our large uh, mammals, uh, our big predators from that landscape. And so most of the range that we're seeing right now of wild pigs is actually where there are a few, if any, predators, uh, you know, the size of a coyote would be the biggest. And coyotes certainly aren't going to impact, you know, the biggest female we've handled was was, uh, you know, 638 pounds, like almost 300 kilos with razor-sharp cuts, and usually they're in groups. So there's no evidence of of predators playing much of a role here. They may. Certainly Alberta has the benefit of having grizzlies and some, you know, some probably one of the more fearsome predators out there for pigs, but uh, but also packs of wolves in some areas. And so they may play some role, but there's no evidence to suggest that predation is going to help us too much with this, which is unfortunate. Well, no easy answers, unfortunately. We'll we'll leave it on that uh, cheery note. Uh, Professor Brooke, though, appreciate your insight in all of this. Thanks for joining us here today. Take care. Bye. All the best. All right, there you go. Some great insights on the wild pig problem. Uh, Dr. Ryan Brooke, Associate Professor at the Saskatchewan College of Agriculture and Bioresources, University of Saskatchewan, also with the Canadian Wild Pig Research Project, uh, based out of the U of S. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.